I come up with a new epithet that this is a this is a uh, uh, evidence of that is there's a lot of things that I should be doing, but I've gotten good at not doing them. And to that end, uh, yesterday I, for some reason I got really interested in the age-old question of how much on-premise IT there is versus how much is in public cloud, which I think I don't know about 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 YouTube, but I feel like that is one of the major existential philosophic questions that started 10 years ago and probably will go for at least 10 more years. It's just like the answer to that question drives pretty much everything in enterprise IT at the moment. Or, well, I don't know. I'm going to overstate it and say pretty much everything. It's not actually the case. By pretty much everything, I mean, I don't know, 60%. But is that a super, a super majority, 70%, right? I, f I forget. I, yeah. No comment, but I know what you mean. I remember being on lots of projects back in the day that were all building up to data center, close down sort of stuff, you know, oh, mm. close our data center. This is, this is it. This is the big time. We're going to, we're going to get rid of our own data center and we're going to move everything to the cloud. And I remember being on loads of those and, and, and didn't once experience the data center shutting down <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> and then moved careers you know and did other things but um but yeah so what so what's the latest then what's uh what's the well i'll I'll, t I'll tell you uh i wanted to bring this up at the beginning here to get your 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 two's take on this um let me summarize what uh, i i sent a rambly unedited uh memo on this in my my midweek edition of my newsletter but let me summarize what i found one First, there's a huge provisio here. I did not spend any money on industry analyst reports. And I feel like if I had a spare two to $5,000 uh, kind of banging around in my pocket that I didn't need, I probably could have gotten the answer very quickly. Uh, but whatever. Like you that kind of... Answer. You could have got one answer. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> but just, just getting an analyst PDF or Excel spreadsheet, that feels like cheating for this question. I mean, if you could, if you could do that, then it, you know, it just like wouldn't be exciting. So... Instead, I did search around the internet and I found the usual press releases and news summaries of analyst stuff. And uh, I don't know. And, and I'm not going to go over what it is in detail, but I feel like I feel like at this point we might be at a 30 to 40 percent in public cloud and then whatever the rest of that math is on premises. Now, the 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 issue there is then you have to make a big uh uh, either a donut or a pie chart, depending on if you like things in the middle of like what types of workloads those are. Because I feel like the majority of that would be what we call software as a service or just applications uh, by revenue, at least. And I think on the other hand, if you were to count by like actual applications, like processes, especially ones that... Um, companies build and run on their own, I kind of have no idea what that number would be. I think it might even be like much, much lower because maybe we have bias because we're talking with a lot of people who are modernizing their applications. But I feel like it's very rare that I come across organizations who are like, oh, yeah, we're running all of our custom built applications in the public cloud. There are many, as you were saying, Ben, who uh, are doing everything or multi-cloud, as, as we like to say, taking on that cloud chaos that to use that, that fun phrase uh but you know it's it seems like it's pretty low now in contrast to that right after i decided i was spending too much time on this and i sent out my uh my rambling missive i uh i went over to my other podcast slack channel and someone had posted a mad money with jim kramer interview with the ceo or head or whatever he's called of aws 
where hopefully this wasn't just offhanded because I feel like it would be accurate if it was well studied and was backed up by a bunch of uh, internal work. But the, the AWS CEO said that there's only about 10% of IT in the cloud. So there's a lot of TAM out there to eat up, a lot, a lot more out there, which uh, I was told, as I like to say nowadays, never to do math in public. But if I did the math on that, that means that 90% of IT is still on premise if we take that, that on faith. So we've got anywhere from, yeah, I would say anywhere from 90% to maybe 50%, maybe 60% of IT is on premise. But you too. What, what are, now, Ed, you cover the industry very closely, thankfully. Someone has to. Uh, you know, um, amongst the three of us, like what, what do you encounter in this area when, when people are trying to get a hold of like how much public cloud versus on-premise there is around? Uh, so the first thing I encounter is all the analyst stuff. <laughs> so mm. you learn very quickly, I think, to take all that with a pinch of salt because it's probably accurate given their context, whichever analyst firm it is, right? But the numbers there vary forever. And it's one of those things, I think everyone tries to keep up feel on this one right i certainly have always tried to keep my idea of where do i think it is i can't remember i say i remember but i don't remember exactly um pat gelsinger standing up at one of our conferences and putting up some figures around how mm. much was cloud how much was on-prem and predicting where it would go and it was a very very slow sort of growth to the cloud or slow migration and there was a huge amount of flack at the time on you know twitter and everywhere else that no this was just mware saying it's all slow and everything. And then I remember sort of thinking, fast forward five, six years, and actually his were about right. It was a lot slower than at the time the AWS mm. everyone else was saying it was going. And I wish I'd kept those actual figures so I could see, was it exactly right, spot on roughly? But definitely slower than a lot of people have said. I mean, I could benchmark my stuff on my home lab. I used to have about, probably at its peak, about six servers um, in my home lab. And now that's gone down to two servers, really, which are both currently turned off. Um, and I run my unified stuff for my networking on a cloud service, and that's about it. Um, the, I turn them on occasionally. I still like the idea of being out of them. The rest has gone cloud. And I just think, you know, I'm a microcosm of everybody. So those absolutely. are the figures. Yeah, yeah. So so do you, do you uh, like, I'm going to throw a few numbers at you here. Do you, do you feel like, do you feel comfortable with a 50-50 split, or do you want more like a 10-90 a, a split? Which would you go closer to? Um, I'm going nearer to probably sort of 25% mm. cloud, 75% on-prem. That's good. That's good. I, I, you know, I would be comfortable with that without, without getting too nuanced about yeah. workloads and all this business, right? Because then once you get into like storage, you're just like, I don't know, this is meaningless, right? Like just because like there's so many different uses of storage and things like that, that it becomes like... I don't know. And it becomes odd. Now, now, now you gave a little bit of, I think you're thinking here, Ben, like over the years you've, you've done this, but also, you know, you've been involved in, uh, before your, your current role and, and, and also in your current role, you, you've been involved in a lot of like, uh, putting your hands on keyboards and mice and like coding up this stuff and moving things around. So you've got a good career of experience of like, we sure would like to run this in the cl public cloud. Let's see what happens. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> what's your sense for? Maybe I don't know. You can you can erase this uh, uh, framing of the question, but when it comes to like the m more widely used application architectures, are they like ready to all run in the public cloud, or are they still sort of like better? Not making that decision at this point, which is not to say they would run on premise. It's just like. It could be cool either way, and you've got to figure out what is best for the application. I think, yeah, I think that's the the 
I think that's the crux of the issue is there's so many angles to it. So I think the first thing I would say about this, is it 10% or 50% in the cloud, is that that sort of assumes that, the, the question, if you like, sort of assumes that there's a fixed volume. So there's a fixed ah. amount. And like, okay, 10% of it's over here, 90% over here. But that's not really how it is at all. You know, actually, there's been a huge amount of growth in various software and services, especially over the last 10 years. You know, we all talked about uh, smartphones and the, the you, you know, accessibility that that brings to, uh, to applications, say, for your bank or for your, uh, you know, your email, all sorts of stuff, everything, right? It's all in your phone. They were all additions to what was already there. So that was in addition to stuff that was already built. So every year there's more and more stuff getting built, but it's in addition to stuff that they already have. So I don't think the number, the volume is fixed. I think that 10% is possibly true, but um, yeah, it's hard. And when you see it inside organizations and they're trying to uh, move forward, um, it's very difficult for them to do that because they have such a complex um, landscape inside their organization. I, li I like, I like, I always like a moving target confounder that, like, uh, you know, means that you've got to, you've got to instead establish like an ongoing model that you can update that takes in the uh, the, the new inputs and is updatable. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, it's, it's. I, I would say it's probably. It, yeah, maybe maybe sort of 20, 25%, like Ed said. But also, the, the industry itself is also changing. There's been a lot more talk recently about things like sovereign cloud, where mm, right. actually, you know, public isn't right. Private data center isn't scalable. So therefore, you know, we need something that's kind of in between, something that a government or, or a particular territory or region or whatever can sign up to as being okay that's that's what we see as being the right answer to this and that's also you know muddying the water somewhat because it's yeah not, sort of is it public is it is it private it's sort of somewhere in between and yeah. you might never know what's on there <laughs> because yeah you? i mean yeah. i mean to, to do the annoying thing of like going back to the fundamentals like i think uh you know, to, to the to the like strategic choice you make, I there's two things that, that you're making me think. I mean, one, there's well, there's three. There's always cost, which is just like, yep, cost is cost. Like you got to figure that out. <laughs> right. Like there's no I don't know. That's generally the most straightforward of things. But then two, like there there's the. Uh, the 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 using whichever infrastructure stack has the capabilities that are best for you. <laughs> Right. And and that, that reminds me of like several weeks ago, I was talking with someone that was like in IT at one of the uh, uh, tax parts of a government, you know, the people who collect taxes, arguably every country's most favorite uh, government ministry or agency, uh, mm. which wherever you are. And someone else had like heard a way that they did their architecture for tax collection, which was just like it was like genius because in order to scale up to this one-time demand for like taking on taxes, right? What they did is they realized that you can basically run the, the front end for collecting taxes, just like authenticating and uploading your tax information all in the public cloud. And then you can just batch up that data and download it to your own data center. 
Because really, when you file your taxes, it's not real time, right? Like, it's just like some indeterminate amount of time later, we'll get back to you. <laughs> and so, like, it's a great use case of like, of like the uh, scaling up nature that you have of public cloud, which, uh, which, which seem nice, uh, you know, pr- pretty, pretty great. And then, you know, to, to be frank, the second point I was going to make, uh, I've completely forgotten. So maybe that's, a, well, that's a was good... it was it just I think it was possibly note to self must file taxes because that's what I uh. <laughs> that's what I started thinking. We we can we can we can we we can talk about my exciting to do list related to taxes in the two countries I pay taxes in after we're done recording here when we're off the air. That's that's always that's always a thrilling topic. But maybe uh, for folks me. could let us know in the comments. Like, have you shut down a data center? Come on. You know, have you have you done it? Have you achieved that mythical, golden, amazing uh, accolade? You know, achievement unlocked, data center powered down. Let us know in the comments because we'd love to hear about it. Because uh, yeah, it seems like maybe they're not shutting down as quickly as some might think. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? I mean, my my desire, and you'll have to tell me, Ed, if you come across this with your well salted analysts, uh, is. Uh, <laughs> Like, I really want that, like, workload breakout, right? Because, like, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of like Ben's moving target thing of, like, I don't know. I don't really care about, like, you know, applications that you buy. Like, ERP stuff and, like, as we used to call it, COTS applications. Because it's kind of sort of like, eh, unless you're, like, the military or spies, you should probably do that, <laughs> right? Like, it's just, like... It's almost, I guess what I'm saying is if you're using like software as a service, it's almost not even interesting from this cloud question anymore because you should just do it. But when it comes to all these other workloads, uh, I don't know, that is, that is, uh, more interesting. Well, anyhow, speaking of all the other workloads, we should, uh, we should do as, as we're, we're chartered here by ourselves. (laughs) <laughs> to, to do and uh and and check in on the news in our our our, uh, our funny little space here now as uh, you know to 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 ed is the one who gathers most of this news so first of all that's fantastic we get to read all of his uh his uh, scurrying about and summarizing which is just delightful in. that's right that's right it's it's good stuff and so what are the one of the the things that uh that you highlighted was this concept of an ambient mesh that I think uh, is essentially uh, kind of latching, not latching on to, but kind of rethinking about how service mesh is done in the Istio world. I shouldn't say rethinking. It's uh, kind of a re, would you call it a refactoring? Kind of changing it around a little bit to, to, to make it run. Maybe. Yeah. But, but instead of me trying to summarize something that I only vaguely know about, why, why don't you uh, tell us what this ambient mesh business is? Yeah, I can summarize something I don't fully understand either. I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the simplest thing for me, for my understanding, because I'm not a, an in-depth network engineer, is it's all about the sidecars or more of the lack of sidecars. So, you know, ever since they've been around, service mesh has always needed an extra sidecar injected into long, alongside your pods. And that meant performance impacts, overheads, all the usual kind of data operations of monitoring, managing all those extra workloads that aren't really doing, or they're, you know, they're providing functionality on their own. They're not a thing you would choose to have, mm. but that's just been how it's done. Um, and now they've introduced a, a way in which you will still have a choice. You can still run with sidecars if you want, but you can run it without the sidecars. And some of the functionality moves to running kind of per node instead of right down in the weeds. 
um, which again gives you you know easier ops and potentially better performance. There's trade-offs for it. I think that's the point. Um, and it's you know there. So this is now been announced as part of Ish, uh, of Istio, but actually about two months ago, I think uh, Isovalent with Cilium did their own service mesh, which has the same thing. So it's you know it's not just Istio. I, I suspect there's going to be all of them will go this way. Of there is an option here. Sidecars obviously add enough overhead that people would like an option without them and pick and choose their trade-offs. Um, but it certainly made a lot of headlines, a lot of people talking about it. And it, I guess it's for me, it's just that evolution. The service mesh stuff has always had a reputation for being a bit complicated. And this is one step to maybe dial it back and go for people who can accept those trade-offs. This might be a better balance, make it easier to deploy. Now, now Ben, I'm going to ask you the big hairy question here. Which, which I like to ask Spring people a lot, is like, doesn't like Spring do all of this already? <laughs> like, yeah. like and, and, and that's a facetious way of putting it. But I think, I think with Service Mesh, the question I'm always trying to figure out is like, like there are so many ways of like doing what a Service Mesh does that how do they all kind of layer and fit together, right? It's almost like, uh, I think we need to introduce like layers eight to 10 in like the network layering stack because we keep oh, like God. messing we keep messing around at like layer seven which i think is the actual application and i think i i, I think what's going on in kubernetes is like a layer 6.5 or something but we need we need some more this is kind of like a fahrenheit versus celsius conversation where at some point you need a lot more precision uh even though the starting temperature is totally bonkers uh but we, we need to figure something out there so how how does like how do the concepts of service mesh kind of mix with just like from the Java and the Spring Framework world where similar things are going on? Well, interesting point. So, you know, that is quite a myopic view of the world, isn't it? It's the Java view of the world, you know. Ah, yes, yes. You know what I mean? Which yep. doesn't really reflect reality greatly. So... Although Spring has a whole bunch of tools that are very easy to use and very easy to stitch together, they, they, you know, you're more likely to use them in an environment that is predominantly using those technologies, and that doesn't describe everybody. So I think the beauty of the sort of sidecar model, um, particularly, was that it abstracted a lot of the details away for things like routing and security and various other things extracted them away from the software developer who wants to concentrate on business logic, which is mostly what they're paid for in enterprises, right? So um, I think that the, the the model is very strong from that perspective. And what's changing here, and, and like Ed said, it's not just um, Istio who are talking about this or other brands of uh, service mesh that are also discussing it, is just making the impact of that lighter because it, it, it scales expensively. Mm. If, if every pod has a sidecar with it, then, and you have, you know, 2000 pods, you've got, you know, 2000 sidecars. If you can reduce that down to instead having a sort of a node sidecar instead, then you only have one sidecar per node, then the volume of those things is, is much less and the cost uh, to run that stuff is much cheaper. So, 
from that perspective, from a, certainly from a cost perspective, it makes a lot of sense. And I think they're quoting sort of 75% in a typical scenario in terms of uh, cost savings uh, oh, based right, right. On, on where they were to, to where it would be in this new model. Um, so if you have a polyglot environment and you've got lots and lots of you know disparate apps running perhaps on very different technologies, um, then it sounds like a, a really good way to a good thing to investigate for your architecture because it will not only save you cost when you build your software but it'll save you cost when you run it as well so i think it sounds like a really good innovation i'm looking forward to hearing more about it yeah yeah you know i mean you, you do point something good out there that well i mean many good things not just <laughs> but but that you know i i i guess i guess you do always have to be careful of like you know the sidecars wagging the motorbike and making sure that they don't become the act just like governance right like you don't you don't want being being compliant to actually be the deliverable that you're doing with software which i think a lot of people fall in and then yeah you know my 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 facetiousness aside like i think it feels like it feels like like at a service mesh layer. Well, first of all, I think it, it bears explaining what the point is, which and tell me if I'm wrong here, but it's essentially like with a cloud native application, you basically are sticking parts of your application into containers that you have to sort of coordinate and run over a network to make it represent like a whole network. I mean, a whole application. So instead of having just like one process running, you've broken it up into little pieces that like communicate with each other over a network. And then once you have a network, you've got to like manage the components having being able to find each other and then manage just like connecting them together. And then, you know, to overload it a little bit, you get the chance to do sort of um, uh, positive man in the middle, not attacks, man in the middle Positivity, augmentation. <laughs> there you go. Augmentation is better. Yes, yes. We're 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 security wise. You can start to monitor what's happening between this and make sure that it's all good uh, instead of bad. Well, things. I mean, I mean, augmenting by adding stuff. You know, adding right, security. Right. right? So, so your, your endpoint may in the pod maybe unsecured because you can because the traffic coming into the pod is only dealt with by the sidecar so the sidecar is a thing that gets secured so it it does sort of relieve you of a lot of responsibilities and a lot of uh, messing about it just gets in the way of you writing your business logic and and instead you're dealing with all these um, cross-cutting concerns instead so so yeah, it's a useful thing. I definitely, uh, I definitely think it's useful. And then, and then, as as it's as a useful Coop... thing, the developers get to throw it over the wall to the ops team. Uh, yeah, things. we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> that 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 is, I mean, that's another trend we should open up with with hand wavy abstractness in some episode. Is like mm -hmm. it, it feels like the direction that the the Kubernetes standardization is going is to allow us to put that wall back in place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe that it was never been removed, but to 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 make peace and 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 uh, what was the word y'all used instead of man in the middle and and uh, augmentation improvement uh, of of the wall between the business logic and the operations logic. Uh, I, you know. I I see it slightly differently. I would say it gives an opportunity for devs and ops. To go for a drink instead of going for a meeting about layer whatever security, right? Mm. Yes. <laughs> no, no dev wants a meeting invite about I, any of this stuff. 
right? So, or maybe someday I'm speaking, you know, uh, I'm, I'm perhaps projecting a little bit too much, but I certainly don't want an invite to a meeting, a three-hour meeting about that stuff. When you could go to the pub and have a drink instead. I, I think I think if we if we workshop that phrase just a little bit more, we'll have some snappy fun phrase that you can start using when you're doing your uh, you know one minute segments on broadcast TV about uh, about what we're up to. You know, bite. We're yeah, that Dev drink ops. That's what. That's you're right. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 you know, then, then you can go have a pint together instead of having a PowerPoint together. I don't know. Like I said, we got to oh, work I on it. it. Like, we got to we got to figure it out. All right. Well, also, also, uh, you know, looking over the news, uh, uh, I think, you know, uh, so so GitLab's big, big company that IPO'd recently, they had uh, uh, their I think their 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 Q2. I don't know what their fiscal year is, but I think it was at the end of July, their their Q2 report. And, you know, I looked through it briefly and I got to say, looks like they're doing a good job. (laughs) <laughs> like they seem they seem to be doing pretty well there. And I thought, uh, you know, it would be a good chance to kind of check in on them and uh, and, and see see what what they do now. Now, Ed, you follow this space all the time. What, how would you characterize what, what GitLabs is into? What's the kind of category that they work in? So I'll be quite honest since I have not looked into GitLab too much. The only so the lasting thing I have, if anyone says GitLab to me, is that everyone just wanted to migrate to GitLab when Microsoft bought GitHub. That was the one thing that ah, really right. stuck in my head, right? Where as soon as Microsoft announced it within days, forums were full of, I've had it, I'm off to GitLab. And that, I don't know if that genuinely sort of spurred their business a lot, but it felt like their moment to grab and go, great, we're here. And they've kind of been there ever since. And that might be completely wrong, but that was kind of the only thing that stuck in my head. And beyond that, I haven't really looked into them, I'm afraid. I do spend my time in this space, but I've been slacking clearly. I've uh, I've had the fortune of working for businesses that both used um, GitHub and GitLab, and GitLab was extremely popular mainly because it had um, the ability to be installed on prem. Right, you could actually put it inside your data center, back to data centers again, and you could have all your own code, and and devs would get the same Git experience that they're used to. Um, elsewhere, but they could have it sort of in a controlled environment, if you like, where they're building their private libraries inside their uh, enterprises. So it was very popular already from that perspective before the sort of announcement of of uh, Microsoft buying uh, GitHub, which I'm, I'm sure did accelerate it somewhat as an alternative. And and you know, I I think I think the the main the the high level. Uh deal so to speak they seem to have is like it's it's a integrated i don't know alm collection of tools right more more than just get as version control on its own i don't know what the the revenue breakout as far as like which parts of the product line get used more but they seem to have uh all of those tools from issue trackers to uh wiki things to your source control to on and on and on that that you would uh, use in that area and you know i mean i think there's 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 a lot of us in that area. We want to improve that tool chain there, and so it, it is. It's always nice to see uh, other people succeeding at it. And I by no means take advantage of the following as much as I would like to at all. But they are, I think. I think the there there you know, I guess you would say an open source business. But the interesting thing that they do is, I think they basically do most all of their internal stuff on a public wiki somewhere. Like you they can do. go read the uh, the quarterly market plan marketing planning <laughs> and OKRs and things like that, which is kind of fascinating to, uh, as I say, I don't actually go look at it that much, but it's a they fascinating do. potential. 
and they're and they're remote first as well you know they've been remote first for a very long time and their hr manual for example is one of those things oh, right. that is online and you can find out all about how they operate as a company how they operate their it how they um uh you know support uh, the folks that they have you know working from home from places all over the world one of the most interesting things that's in that manual to me anyway is that they don't buy windows so they don't supply staff with windows laptops and stuff by oh phone. right it's huh. like no we're not doing any of that we want a different approach to our network and the way that we um the way that we uh uh, work and the way that we support folks who are working from home so very interesting that they've turned their back on microsoft uh, windows <laughs> which is kind of like you know the mainstay of enterprises everywhere but now now yeah, i mean the major consequence of that is they're probably their pivot tables aren't going to be as great as other companies because <laughs> i mean everyone knows that if you want like the best excel tools you have to run it on windows so there there might be a few tells in their analysis I can't say anything about Office Suite, right? But Windows operating system is definitely in there. It's like, no, you can have Apple or you can have Linux. But um, So it's actually like policy that about yeah. what you can run. Ah, yeah. I was going to say, because I don't even know if you have to pay for Windows anymore. But I see you if, it's kind, yeah, of, yeah. Yeah. if it's kind of against networking policy, then that's interesting. Yeah, like but there is a there is a license for the desktop. So yeah, they uh, they don't want to pay that license for the desktop. Um, they don't trust it. They think it's not very secure. I think from judging by what they say in the manual, and mm. uh, they want folks to use um, Apple or Linux, which uh, I'm very pr proud of using Linux. So I'm I'm all for that. <laughs> but coming back to what they actually do. I think where they've really grown the last few years, and and it's it's been sort of surprising, I think, particularly to um, you know folks in the industry, is is just covering that whole secure sort of software supply chain, like you said, you know, the CI/CD, the um, static uh, security testing, the dynamic security testing, all sorts of stuff that's gone into this huge sort of pipeline of stuff that can help you get from you know, a, an idea through to a piece of deployed code. And I think that's very commendable. And that's possibly um, why we're seeing such good results from them financially as well, because they seem to hit a nerve. You know, that's good. As do we. You know, we we also think that that's a really good thing to have. We're very strong supporters of the whole idea of a flexible software supply chain that's secure. Well, speaking of security... The the uh, the sneak state of uh, cloud security report was out. I think I think uh, you you enjoyed pouring through that, right, Ben? Is that I did uh, have what? a look. Yeah, and, yeah. And 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 before we get to that, it, you pronounce it sneak, right? Is that how yeah. how you like that? Seem that seems like I always thought that was an odd choice for a security company name, but you know, it's still pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know what you mean, but yeah, sneak and and uh, <laughs> you know an interesting spelling as well. I think. Uh, I think some folks get caught out from that from time to time. I've definitely seen PowerPoints with, with the wrong spelling in there. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, what, uh, what, what do they say is going on? What's the state of cloud security? Well, yeah, so they've done this survey. I think there was 400 uh, respondents working in the um, cloud security arena because, of course, they've got uh, products in that area as well. Um, I'll give you some of the highlights if you like. 
Uh, 80% of organizations have experienced at least one severe cloud security incident in the last year, such as data breaches, data leaks, intrusions into our environment. 80%, so, you know, four out of five. <laughs> That's a lot. But also what's interesting is that um, there were some findings in there about who's most susceptible. So most susceptible, they say in this survey, uh, uh, things like public sector organizations, which you can kind of understand because you know that the, 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 perhaps the investment is difficult to come by if you're, if you're limited in budgets and that sort of thing. Um, and also, uh, what did it say, public sector and... Um, the best were were actually enterprises, you know, the sort of folks that that we deal with. So, you know, who knew if you uh, if you spend on good tooling, uh, you get better results. So that's a, that's a good finding, I think, from that report. Generally, I think that's good. Um, and I think one other <laughs> thing I'd like to call out, I reckon, was that seventy seven percent of organisations cited problems with poor training and collaboration as a major challenge. Now, I like to mention this because I did a video recently about what if your platform actually trained your people. So go and check it out on YouTube if you haven't seen it, and uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. But, but yeah, you know, if your platform helped train your people, maybe that can reduce the burden that's causing seventy cent. 77% of folks to have a problem, you know, getting the right skills and being able to solve this security issue. Well, I think this is a good chance for what hopefully will be a reoccurring segment called Let's Check In with YouTube star Ben. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and see, how, how, uh, how, how is your YouTube strategy going? How are the shorts? Let's, let's do a review of that. Or, do it's, you think it's not as it's not as regular as perhaps you made out there? <laughs> well, I, I I feel like it's been a long enough time. You've had since last we talked about this. You've had a couple of months to analyze what's been going on with your YouTube stardom. Well, and, what I uh, did you have any lessons learned? Out, what I did find out, Kote, from doing a very um, small scale A/B test was that um, videos that actually contain my face do worse than videos that don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's completely booking the trend of okay we all right have a human in the picture <sighs> some humans perhaps not so uh, so yeah i take that away as a key okay thing, uh, for there, experimentation there you go that's a free one for the uh, the people out there who are working in nerd space with computers try try not having so much of a face Focus on the, the terminal. Space That's right. Radio, maybe, maybe if you had if you had your head and on your forehead you put like the terminal, like do a little green screaming, green <laughs> or screaming too. But you know that's where you had the actual code. Uh, well, there's plenty doing. of room. Uh, I reckon I could probably do that. Yeah, that makes this stream basically the least good thing possible, isn't it? It's just three talking faces. Exactly. <laughs> Improved. Whoa! It's it's increased by thirty three percent. That's it. So yeah, there's a, there's a there's an interesting thing. Have you ever done an an A B test like that, Kote? Because you your your shorts are excellent. You know, I everybody loves them, me included. I I, I have to say that over the years I've done lots of A B testing. I just have never analyzed the results of the testing. I I always I'm always intending like I'm going to try something new versus something else, and so I set it up. And every now and then I even set a reminder to go check in on something, but then I, I don't. So uh, I, I don't do that analysis. I'm very, very waterfall in, in my approach. I just deliver the thing and then that's it. 
And what what did you say in the preamble? Something about you become very good at avoiding. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, yes. There's 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 a there's a lot of things I should be doing, but I've become really good at not doing them. And, but you know, I've, or or to put maybe I or you could also say there's a lot of things I should be doing, but I've been very busy not doing them. Uh, you know, is another. Yeah. You prioritize what not to do. That's it's very very admirable. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, uh, finally, you know, speaking of of reports and surveys, there's the uh, also the new relic observability report came out, and uh, I know you took I know you took a look at that, Ed. What uh, what jumped out of at, at you from that? So the first one, and I think to be fair, this is kind of every survey, right? This is probably everyone getting them out ready for KubeCon and things. Um, the new Relic one, a bit like the, the SNCC one, said, hey, we do security and everyone needs security. The new Relic one said, actually, everyone needs observability tools. Um, there's some stats. So this one was quite a big survey, actually. They had over 1,500 sort of people fill it in. Um, but they ended up saying, I think, where was it? 82% um, use four or more observability tools. But basically, everyone is using something. Um, and mm. that, to me, I mean, that's absolutely no surprise. I'd have probably put that at 100%, frankly. Everyone, as long as I've ever been in IT, has wanted one tool to monitor everything. And no one has ever had that. And no one will ever have that. Um, yeah. They did say in their report, to be fair, 2% did say they did it all with a single tool set. Oh, the 2% are probably lying or just unaware of all the other tools that they actually have. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's no surprise to anyone, right? There's a lot of companies in that space. So lots of tool sets, some of which we do as well, right? Um, and probably not the only one you have. Um, or, it's a, or it's a small business, right? Because that, that came out in the sneak report as well. It's like, oh, hmm. surprise, surprise. It's easier to be secure if your footprint is less. Ah. <laughs> Yes. And I'm sure the same is true with observability, right? If you've only got a certain number of technologies or vendors, whatever, you probably can do with one of these unified tools. Yeah. But most companies aren't in that position. And then you're just yeah. like, you know, the minute you get above a certain level of detail, the all-in-ones never do the job quite right. So not a big surprise in that respect. Um, they did have a quite like a third of organizations rely on manual checks and customer complaints to identify interruptions. And again, I'd have put that number much higher because... <laughs> However, rich monitoring is, somebody will always either complain or find something you haven't noticed. But either way, it was an interesting approach of actually, for some people, right, that might still be the most cost-effective way of doing it. Customers complain, that's fine. That gives you a quick alarm, you fix it. Maybe you don't lose revenue, you lose a bit of customer interest, but um, for some that will work. Um, blockers for adoption of them, the biggest one was lack of understanding of the tool sets, I think, and what you need to do to get full stack observability. Um, which again, wasn't too surprising. There's a lot of complexity in there. And I think people used to just think, especially from the IT sort of infrastructure side, well, monitoring is monitoring, right? I, I know what that is. And the new world of observability is a long way from that. And there's a lot more business understanding required as well as a lot more sort of technical tooling. Um, so that and budget, having the budget to actually get the observability tools, I mean, now you have to understand what it is you need, and then you have to be able to explain it to people and give them business outcomes and implement it in a way that works and doing that to budget obviously is a bit of a challenge and they did point out also that the the companies who felt they had full stack observability had put something like five percent of their revenue into getting that tooling oh wow huh it's a significant chunk and i think a lot of companies would struggle to justify that or it would take them a long time right they go through that iteration um you can't just turn up out of blue and say we've got all this lovely new cloud native stuff we're migrating 10 percent of our it to the cloud whatever you're going to call it Oh, and by the way, we have to spend this much observing it all. That's a hard ask for people until they realize that it actually is worthwhile. 
So yeah, those were, and the only surprising thing I saw in their survey that really stood out to me was of all, now this was from New Relic and sort of, I guess they've categorized it the way they do things. They cover observability for everything, but it was interesting in on for the world at least, Kubernetes came pretty much last in the list of things that people wanted observability for. Mm. So they had 20 other categories and it was rock bottom. Um, and you know, on top of that was sort of, it's a little difficult without seeing all the questions, network monitoring and sort of database monitoring and infrastructure monitoring. But what they saw as different categories, right? So presumably you would not be monitoring on Kubernetes network. You, it'd be generic network monitoring that came top. Kubernetes as a specific area to monitor was very low down. And they, they put it down to just, well, actually on the scale of everything, coming back to about how much IT is in the cloud, Kubernetes is still a small chunk. Um, when you look at the whole landscape, whether that's mainframes, x86, everything, Kubernetes is new, is, well, you know, new, depending on your audience. Um, still being adopted on that scale. So. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Because I mean, all the way back to our discussion, right? Like looking at, I guess it's a, uh, here, correct me where I get this wrong, but it is a trailing indicator. And, indi you know, something that's happening in the, in the past of basically to look at what management companies are doing, like New Relic and others. Like it's a good indication of the this types of IT being used. It sounds ridiculous to say it out loud, but you know, it's, it's, you generally manage some type of IT that you use, hopefully. <laughs> and so to see what that breakout is, it gives you a good indication of like on-premise versus public cloud or what database or this, that, or the other. And New Relic's been around long enough that they probably have, I mean, they're not like a uh, custom built Kubernetes observability startup. They, yeah, they, right. they aspire to manage everything. So they have the, uh, the full gamut there. Well, uh, if you want to find links to everything we went over, you can go to tanzutalk.com and sadly, you will have to find this episode. But if you're really interested, I, I, I wager you won't be listening to this six months or two years into the future. So if you go there within this week, you'll probably find it on the top and you can click on it, uh, you know, which seems easy to do. But also... Uh, you want to tell people about a conference we have coming up, Ben? How, how would you describe this thing we have December 6th to 8th in San Francisco? What's going on there? Uh, 6th to 8th in San Francisco. Is this December? Sorry, did you say? December, yes. I, December. I thought I was going to challenge you to pick the month. This is the <laughs> spring one, right? That's right. You got it. Spring one, yes. Coming back in person, wholly in person event, I understand this year. And uh, we'll be at the Moscone Center in San Francisco. A uh, whole bunch of interesting uh, talks going to be there and speakers going to be there. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I believe it's possible to get a discount on your ticket, right, Kote? That's right. If you use the code Kote200. It will get you a mysterious amount of money off of your registration. You'll have to go fill out the registration and put in the code COTE, C-O-T-E 200, and you can then see how much of a discount that you get. It's a, it's a fun little game you can play. Uh, hopefully it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be missed. The, the, the keynotes are always brilliant. You hear from some of the best folks in the, in the software industry who are using uh, Spring and Anger. I remember a few years ago, for example, it was... Um, uh, Blizzard, you know, the games folks were, mm. were on uh, the main stage, which was which was really cool. Uh, so yeah, don't miss it. And also the the after parties and the events that go around around the same time are also brilliant. You know, really really good. So yeah, 
sign up do it and i we're we're, we're planning a uh, podcasting and streaming booth that we're gonna have booth is at, let's say area and so i think we'll have some tanzu talk stuff done live from the floor i mean hopefully it'll be on the floor not levitating somewhere uh so we'll we'll uh, we'll figure that out well uh well i've just got to say i thought you were going to ask me about vmware explore europe oh yeah that's time that explore is coming to europe we've never had explore in europe before so don't miss that that's uh november 6th through 10th right no 7 through 10th 10th maybe um yes uh, barcelona and uh i'll be there kote you're gonna be there so yeah don't miss that either that's uh you know a different sort of thing i guess you know it's a, a broader sort of set of uh of use cases being discussed, but we'll have lots of customers, lots of partners, loads of interesting stories and topics, I think. And, Absolutely. Uh, if you come down to the stand, you'll be able to certainly meet me and uh, possibly you'll even see a beardy Kote wandering around. The <laughs> De- definitely. And, you know, th- it'll be great because, uh, you know, w- if you're interested in the Tanzu application platform, it's a great place to get all the tapas that you want. You can, you can definitely... Uh, uh, that was, that's my joke for the episode, and we should end before I make any ter- other terrible ones. <laughs> well, if you want to get the show notes for this episode, like I said, you can go to tanzutalk.com. And uh, remember, you should definitely subscribe to this podcast. And even if you don't want to listen to it, you can subscribe to it. Find all the podcast downloading devices in your house from your, your loved ones, your enemies, your children. Open up the podcast app and subscribe to it. You can set it up to auto-delete. It needs to fa- download the whole episode every week. doesn't matter. But that's, uh, that's what I recommend for maximum enjoyment in life. And with that, we'll see everyone, uh, you know, next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.